3: Noble mistress, tis fresh morning with me when you are by at night. I do beseech you, chiefly that I might set it in my prayers, what is your name?
2: Miranda. Oh, my father, I have broke your haste to say so.
3: Admired, Miranda. Indeed, the top of admiration. Worth what's dearest to the world. For many a lady I have eyed with best regard, and many a time the harmony of their tongue hath into bondage brought my too diligent ear. For several virtues have I liked several women, never any with so full soul. But some defect in her did quarrel with the noblest grace she owed and put it to the foil. But you, oh you, so perfect and so Peerless are created of every creature's best. I do not know one of my sex.
0: No woman's face, remember, save from my glass, my own. Nor have I seen more that I may call men than you, good friend, and my dear father. Our features are abroad, I am skillless of, but by my modesty...
3: The jewel in my dower, I would not wish for any companion in the world
0: but you. And nor can imagination form a shape beside yourself to like off, but but, but I prattle something too wildly and my father's precepts I
3: therein do forget. I am in my condition a prince, Miranda. I do think a king. I would not so, and would no more endure this wooden slavery than to suffer the flesh fly blow my mouth. Hear my soul speak. The very instant that I saw you, did my heart fly to your service. Fair resides to make me slave to it, and for your sake am I this patient logman. Do you love me? Oh, oh heaven? Oh, Earth, bear witness to this sound, and crown what I profess with kind event, if I speak true, if hollowly, invert what best is boded me to mischief. I, beyond all limit of what else in the world, do love prize honour you. (laughs) I am a fool to weep at what I am glad of.
1: That was... Ferdinand and Miranda falling in love in Act 3-1 of the Royal Shakespeare Company's 2017 production of The Tempest. Welcome back to the plays The Thing, Act 3 of The Tempest. I am Tim McIntosh and I am joined by Heidi White. This is our third episode, Heidi, about one of William Shakespeare's final plays, and perhaps his most magical play. How, how are you? I hear you have snow in Colorado in October. We
2: have so much snow in Colorado. I am beginning to suspect that it's Prospero's doing. It is mm-hmm. very, very unusual for us to have this much snow in October. I mean, we occasionally will have little flurries, but rarely do we get a big storm like this at this time of year. So it is very magical. Uh, lots of playing outside, Lots of pumpkin bread and hot apple cider and warm blankets and good things having to do with snow. But I am like a tad bit grumpy about it because I really like the nice fall weather. So I'm a little disappointed. So glad to be on a magical island in which somebody can make it be what the whatever they
1: want it to be. So yes. can I ask you a question? How do your kids yeah. respond? Are they kind of Do you get enough snow in Colorado that they're kind of over it, or is it still a fun break from normalcy?
2: Right. We don't get enough snow over the winter to distract from how magical it is to have a big storm. When we do have a big storm like this, when we've, uh, and we live out in the woods, and so it really looks like the beautiful movie version of Narnia, which by the way was not what Lewis intended. He wanted it to be kind of a drab and ugly wintry Narnia, but the movie version, the film versions always make it look like a magical winter wonderland. And so our land does look like that when it snows and we do enjoy that. And as long as I have enough food and toilet paper, I'm fine with being snowed in. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
1: sorry. I just got to ask more questions. So I'm, I'm in Seattle. And Seattle gets snow maybe once a year. And last year, I can't remember what podcast we were doing. We had an absolute, I I don't know how to describe it. We had maybe four, three and a half feet at one point, which is probably the most no though. Oh, it was insane. It was insane. So my friends, the Scriveners and I, we, you know, we needed to get some food. So we all walked down this hill that we live on. You know, there's several neighborhoods up on top of this hill. We walked down the hill to the QFC at the bottom of the hill. And it was everybody so happy and, hey, how are you? Hey, it's good to see. Isn't this beautiful? You know, because it's so exceptional to get that much snow in Seattle. And then we walked into the grocery store and it was a wasteland. I mean, it was like you could see like bag wrappers just blowing like tumbleweeds through the aisles. Everyone had just descended on the place like a bunch of foreshadowing harpies and they had like just taken all of the food out of the place. How does your area respond? I mean, is like inclement weather a reason to like ride in the street into storm
2: right so grocery stores or question. you guys do it? Yes. I think it is a truth universally acknowledged that a <laughs> snowstorm will catalyze people into buying the like insane amounts of food and supplies it's true i think everywhere even in places where snow is a part of life there's just no more paper towels there's no more bottled water there's no more bread or milk which why do people need 3 gallons of milk for like a 2-day snowstorm like nobody knows but there's something in the human psyche that Reacts with fear and trembling to the possibility of not being able to get out of their house for like an hour and a half. <laughs>
1: so right, and people are buying batteries. People right? buy batteries for appliances that they don't even use batteries. No, it is, it's it really insanity, true. Which may, yeah. be, you know, it, it, I hate to say it, Heidi, but it may mean that we are so, you and I are so used to civilization that the fact we don't freak out is more because, <laughs> I'll just speak for myself, it's more because like someone's going to take care of me. I just know it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to go buy bread. Someone's going to, I believe in the government's ability to rescue me from this snowstorm. I'm not even going to buy batteries. I'm not going to buy Well, batteries. and
2: we all have iPhones now, right? So I I will, I'm not afraid to look at the iPhone. And I, I do order extra stuff. I am not exempt from this. I'm also a mad woman. I will order... I think I have three like giant uh, packages of toilet paper in my house right now because that's like a nightmare. Like that's that's the kind of thing you wake up and think about, like in the middle of the night. Like, what if we don't have any toilet paper in the middle of a snowstorm? <laughs> so I have plenty of toilet paper. So if anybody wants to trudge out in their snowshoes to my house to use the bathroom, you'll dole I'm it your out. your person, yeah. Yep. So <laughs> we bantered for long enough because. I don't want people to think I'm a freakazoid, so...
1: Right, let's, talk, so let's talk about Act Three. So, <laughs> uh, Heidi, we just listened to Ferdinand and Miranda, and I have to say, there are all sorts of lovely romantic scenes in Shakespeare. This one might be my favorite, because it's so innocent. It's so sweet. And they're both... I believe every word that they're saying to each other, and when I think of some of the other, like lovely um, scenes between a man and a woman, like I think of Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. and you can hear disaster in the background when Romeo and Juliet meet each other at the ball. You know, they've got their masks on; they're kind of plucking their masks off. They're showing each other furtively. That they might be interested in each other, but their families are looming so close behind that it's hard. You can just smell the doom. Um, Even in As You Like It, Orlando, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten the other character's name, but they meet in the woods, and one is running away, and the other is posing as another character. And they're not, they can't be perfectly candid with each other. They can't be open with each other, which is part of the reason why the scene works so well. But in this scene, Ferdinand and Miranda, they're wearing no masks. There's no portent of doom looming behind them. They're both, especially Miranda, so innocent that they can just fall in (laughs) love. They can fall in love so swiftly. And I, I, believe everything that's happening between the two of them
2: right yeah i i do too and i think it's part of the conditions of the world of the story that their love is allowed to be so pure and sweet because it's the other characters who are battling it out for power for supremacy for uh, appropriation of the island um and for whatever world they want to take over back home but all that Ferdinand and Miranda desire is to love each other and their their kind of sweetness and innocence and movement towards happiness is the counterbalance of all of the rest of the scheming, whether for good or ill on the rest of the island. And I think that the story needs that anchor point or else it becomes too tangled.
1: Mm-hmm. It easily. It could be very tangled.
2: Right. And the rest of other Shakespearean comedies, as you point out, as you like it, Romeo and Juliet, which is not a comedy. Uh, and but other Shakespearean love stories, require a bit of worldly wisdom on the part of the characters, even the virginal characters, uh, because Shakespeare is exploring different experiences of love. Um, You know, I think of Rosalind uh, and Orlando and there in As You Like It, and they're they're both virginal characters, right? They have this innocence to them, but there's also this contemplation of identity and what if Rosalind is a man, does Orlando still fall in love with her? And, you know, that there's there's all these kind of layers of contemplation midsummer night's dream in which the lovers yeah. are basically interchangeable and what what why does it matter if this one's in love with that one and this one with that one like there's that's kind of some of the the questions of love that shakespeare explores in other comedies but in this one it's just too almost like an adam and eve
1: yeah
2: in, in an eden
1: yeah um so i it, because I like this scene so much, Heidi, I thought that we could try something a little bit different. Um, Ooh,
2: I'm intrigued. Yeah. Please it's, go on.
1: So what I would like to do is something that we did that Gutenberg College Race Teach still does. We would have um, for freshmen, for sophomores, and for juniors, a class called micro exegesis. And you can probably figure okay. out what what happened in this class just based on that title so micro exegesis was just basically a close reading and for teachers if you ever have a hard text that you're dealing with or just hard passages within um a text this is a great easy way to do a class and it is the it is such a great way to teach students how to read difficult material so we would have the students sit down in a circle and we would give them at the beginning of the year a very difficult book. So usually for freshmen, <laughs> we, we just gave them like the most difficult book that we could possibly find, which was either some years we did Aristotle's categories, some years we did Aristotle's metaphysics, and we would give the students these texts. And we would ask the students one at a time to go around to read one paragraph and then to say what they believed it meant. So they would have to do it, and before the class could go on, there would have to be some kind of agreement that that reading of that paragraph was a pretty good reading. So thought that we could do that same thing, but we could just each pick a, a, a section from this play. And I would like to do Ferdinand's um, section to Miranda in the middle of 3-1 that begins, admired Miranda, indeed the top of admiration. So if Got that, that like sounds that. good to you, I'm just going to, um, I, I'm just going to do it and you can kind of like get the pattern of how it goes. Okay, that all right?
2: This is fun. I like this.
1: Good. I like it too. I, I was like, I oh, hope this doesn't get too academic, but I just think it'll be enjoyable. So in, in my edition of Shakespeare, which is the complete Pelican edition, this is Tempest 3-1, so act three, scene one. And I'm going to pick up at, at uh, line 38, and I'm going to go down to roughly, gosh, 49. So here it goes. Uh, Ferdinand, admired Miranda, indeed the top of admiration, worth what's dearest to the world. So he opens up with a little wordplay, admired Miranda, indeed the top of admiration. So the word admiration is kind of reference back to miranda and be the top of admiration worth what's dearest in the world full many a lady i have eyed the bet with best regard and many a time the harmony of their tongues hath into bondage brought my too diligent ear so the harmony of their tongues hath brought my too diligent ear is half into bondage brought my too diligent ear um these these women that he has been interested in before hath by their impressive speech made him kind of subject to the things that they have said their tongues hath into bondage brought my too diligent ear for several virtues have i liked several women never any with so full sour but with some defect in her did quarrel with the noblest owed. Okay. This is a little bit thick for several virtues. Have I liked several women? So I take that to mean, uh, he loved this one woman because he perceived her to be beautiful. He loved another woman because he perceived her to be intelligent. Another woman, because he perceived her to be well-spoken never with so full soul. I think I said sour the first time. never with so full soul But some defect in her did quarrel with the noblest grace she owed. So he might have admired these particular virtues of these particular women. But with so full soul, I think that refers, Set talking about his soul or her soul?
2: It's a little tricky, that little spot, the pronoun is a bit ambiguous there, isn't Uh it? I think, I think it's her them.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Never any with so full soul, but there was some problem, some defect mm-hmm. in her that quarreled with the thing that he most liked in her. So if she was well-spoken, uh, there was still, there was a problem that quarreled with her ability to speak well and put it to the foil. So did quarrel with the noblest grace she owed and put it to the foil. The foil, I assume, is a fencing sword, a fencing foil. And so... The noblest grace was kind of cut down by this sword. But oh, you, so perfect and so peerless, are created of every creature's best. That's a, that's a, that's a, it's kind of a turn. So instead of talking about virtues, he's still talking about virtues. Basically, Miranda to Ferdinand. He just has, she has everything and she doesn't have a fault that's going to quibble with her graces or her virtues. She's got, she's perfect. She has every creature's best. Thus ends the micro exegesis, Heidi. (laughs) That's good. Thanks. Would you, so again, like Heidi, I think you might like to try one. Maybe we can try um, something a little bit deeper in the act, but I just want to say It's such a helpful thing for students to go through this process, especially because there's a little bit of that nice impetus of um, the classes watching them and paying attention and making sure that they're kind of like agreeing with the reading that they're giving. So it's a really nice way to kind of focus the class around a text that would be really difficult to read otherwise.
2: Right. I loved that. That was really fun. I want to respond, but that would take so much time. Um, but that was great. I really want to do, though, Caliban speech in Act Three, Scene Two, line 130 down to, it looks like, 139. And this speech is um, towards the end of this scene. And the scene is Caliban, Stefano, and Trinculo, and they're wandering around drinking and plotting.
3: Uh Uh-huh.
2: And they've plotted against now Alonzo and Prospero, vented their rage, uh, not only towards the leadership, but even towards each other. Although, it's supposed to be joking, but you're not really sure if there's also some kind of latent animosity that they're expressing towards each other, these three claiming to be friends. So the speech that I'm going to read is Caliban responding to questions about the island and himself, his own nature. They've asked him, they've, they've repeatedly called him a monster or a dog and dehumanized him uh, and and so this is his response. He's talking about how he lives on the island and is part of the island. And his response is this. Be not afeared. The isle is full of noises, sounds, and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears and sometimes voices that have I then had waked after long sleep will make me sleep again. And then in dreaming, the clouds me thought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me. That when I waked, I cried to dream again. So, if I was to do a little micro yeah. exegesis yeah. of this speech, uh, first I would probably comment, I'll, I'll comment on the form. Uh, it's a very beautiful speech, uh, and Caliban. Is not known for his beautiful speeches at the point that he's giving this, he's drunk, um, but the words are still rolling off his tongue, again, speaking to the nature of his education and his fine mind and ability to generate thoughts and words um, that then we ask ourselves, why is he so corrupt then, Right. Why has he not been educated out of his savagery, but instead he continues to give in to his appetites? Um, the next thing I would pay attention to is the content of what he's saying. The, uh, the isle is full of noises, sounds, and sweet air. So this is a magical place. This island is, uh, there's constant magical experiences, enchanted experiences that give delight and hurt not. Um, The next line is interesting. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears. Uh, That's that word twangling. I don't necessarily uh, hear harmony in that word. It Mm. sounds very uh, cacophonous, Mm. um, which I've always interpreted that as speaking to Um, Caliban's inability to harmonize what is delightful and doesn't hurt as he already spoke but he can't really hear harmony in it because I think his soul is so disordered which kind of goes back to our conversations about the nature of the soul and the nature of Caliban Um, and so Two and then he he says the next in the next little part will hum about mine ears and since we're doing micro exegesis and I would skip over this any other time the word about is interesting to me because it um it does fit within the form so it really could just be a formal choice to keep the meter but that it is an 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 externalizing word if that makes sense so um, he doesn't say that the thousand twangling instruments become a part of him in any way. They're always external to him. There's something Uh he's not necessarily participating in. Um, They're, they're not, he's, he's not taking them in and harmonizing them and allowing them to do their work within him. He is, um, they're just always something taking place outside of him. Um, It could have
1: been, it could have been within
2: It could have been within, it would have kept Uh the meter. Um, And so, exactly. But, so again, I don't know if that was an intentional choice, but I've always noticed this when I've read The Tempest or watched a performance. Um, And then to move on. And sometimes voices that if I then had waked after long sleep will make me sleep again. Uh, So... He, we know that Prospero uses the magic of the island and his own magic to put people into enchanted sleeps. He's done it several times, and this is Caliban commenting on that—that um, that he he'll be wakened by them and then go to sleep by them. They they control him um, in many ways. And then in dreaming, the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me. That when I waked, I cried to dream again and that little oh man that ending just again makes me feel a sense of compassion for this tormented Caliban although he is a dark character I'm not trying to say he's not he is he is the the shadow part of the island but he's also sad and grieving um, and he longs to participate in the goodness of the magic of the island but he can't yeah um, and then there's this really interesting meditation upon sleep and dreams and waking and the question then is, which is more real, which is more healing to be asleep under magical influence or to be awake in a harsh reality. Um, that's kind of the question of modern contemplations too, like the matrix, right? Um, uh-huh, that's uh-huh. that same idea is, is it better to be asleep and to experience, um, something that feels good or is it better to be awake when it's when everything around me is not as good as my dreams so
1: what is the um, answer to that question Heidi? can you I solve that one for us?
2: no i don't i can't but i think in 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 reality it's a false dichotomy within a world of a story you accept it on its own terms but in our world um if, if we do believe that we are journeying towards the kingdom of God, it's always better to be awake and to participate in the full reality and to, um, to, be, to see the fall for what it is, um, knowing that someday we will wake up fully in the kingdom. Um, but within the world of the story, I'm not so sure, especially for Caliban. I don't know. What do you think? <sighs>
1: I almost think this goes against my deepest convictions, but I almost think it would be better for Caliban to kind of like stay in a dream world. I think that he, I don't know. I I, I think living as, as a slave on that Island has been so, so difficult for him. And yet he has these moments. We talked about this last week. He has these moments like this, the conclusion of this little monologue. Um, where he, or maybe the entire monologue, where he, he he has these felicitous, noble longings that he can kind of aspire to, and yet they seem kind of tied to this kind of dreamlike state that he slips into. I almost think for Caliban, poor guy, he needs to stay in his dreamless sleep, sleep his dreamless, his, his dreamful state, um, because reality is really hard for him. It's really, really hard for him. I'm. A, I, I don't feel really great about that.
2: I know it is hard because, in some ways, he is also the maker of his own destiny. Because he could have joined in the redemption that was offered to him through Prospero and Miranda. Because there was a time that they loved each other. They both admit that. And so, but I think with the island, there's just, it, it's a magical place. It's an enchanted place, but I'm not convinced it's a good place or a holy yeah. place.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so,
2: uh, it's, it's a tricky place. It's, it's a place that you can't fully put your weight on because it's not the same reality as any other place in the world. It has its own rules. And so, uh, and it has maybe a benevolent despot, but it's still a, 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 a tyrant. Um, whether or not that tyrant is uh, to be condemned for his tyranny or whether he's trying to do good, it's still, it's just a scary, I, I feel like it would be a scary place. Do
1: you think, Heidi, that um, that the island shares anything with like another locale from the classical tradition or even something more contemporary from the 20th century, something like Narnia or maybe something like middle earth. Oh, that's or, a good Obviously there are similarities in that they are kind of fantasy worlds.
2: That's but a great question. Yeah. Keep going.
1: Is it other than the fantasy aspects, is it, is it, how is it similar to Narnia?
2: Right. That's a good question. I I do see it differently. I see it, I see this island, and this may just be my own reading of it, because it's, there's very little description of it. So I, I can't, what's interesting about this with the, the island, Prosper's Island in the world of this play is that it is, it's not described. So it's not necessarily anchored to any, um, description from the author which leaves it almost this primordial like primeval whatever i imagine it looks like so in my imagination this island looks a little bit like the island in jurassic park
1: (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) yeah yeah
2: Full of like foliage and it's very like it's raining and misty and it's um you get lost in it really quickly. It's hard to orient yourself. There's not a lot of landmarks. It just feels almost like a jungle version of the deep, dark woods in a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's
1: a great comparison.
2: And so is that kind of how you picture it too?
1: It's exactly how I picture it as a matter of fact. Yeah. Yeah. It's
2: interesting to me because that's not a description within the within the play. And so it's It feels less like Narnia and Middle Earth, which seemed like they have, even though it's only imaginary, it seems like a real geography to it. There's anchor points, there's there's a landscape to it in the mind of their own maker, that this feels a lot more amorphous, a lot harder to take hold of, and a lot more allegorical. And so I do see it very differently from a fantasy world that's crafted and created and we kind of take as already made. I'm just making this imaginary world in my own way.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we get a little description from Caliban. We get a little bit of a description from Gonzalo, but it's, mm-hmm. it's very, it's as you say, it's not terribly detailed. It's, it's just kind of, it's a wonderland. It's kind of a rom- romantic, not um, between the sexes, but romantic, like capital R, It's just this sort of Edenic paradise. Yeah, and I I like it. It seems to me like Narnia and Middle Earth are civilizations. And their nature has been sort of like tamed in some places Mm -hmm. in Narnia and Middle Earth. It's been abused in some places in Narnia and Middle Earth. But they're fully formed civilizations that have come under despotic rule. This is not a civilization as a matter of fact it's an escape from civilization it's always the nature of the island is consistently being contrasted with the kind of grotesques of the italian men and their civilization so it it, the contrast i think in narnia and middle earth is life before the despot and life under the despot—that's the main contrast of those stories. I think the story here is civilization and, let's just call it nature, kind of unspoiled right. nature.
2: Right. Well, and to your point, um, Shakespeare—the the green world is common in Shakespeare. It's used in multiple plays. Uh, a place where that is contrasted with civilization. I think of Midsummer Night's Dream, which is probably the play that's the closest kind of feel to it as the Tempest. that we, And we've talked about that before. That Midsummer Night's Dream has this contrast between the civilization of Athens and the woods to which the characters escape and go have magical experiences. And there within the green world, their society is reordered. Uh, the chaos kind of comes to a head and then... Uh, becomes order, becomes orderly again, and a new kind of society is formed that then they bring back to the civilized world, and that comes back into Athens with them. Uh, and so the green world is used in the Merchant of Venice, in Portia's house, the name I can't remember of right now, uh, it's in As You Like It. Um, so there's, there's the sense in which Shakespeare uses the removal from the city into a state of nature, uh, and it looks like everything's going to fall apart and become disordered, and to a certain extent it does, but that's only so that the characters can put the order back together again, and then start a new society and that tradition goes way earlier than Shakespeare to uh the to Greek comedy uh, Mm. in in new comedy when there was this conflict between the father figure and the younger lovers and then that had to be decided in some way uh usually in favor of the lovers and then a new society is forms that got that got rid of all those old rules that were dumb and that kept the lovers apart and so Shakespeare plays with that form a lot in his comedy and he does it here except uh, the father figure only appears to be an obstacle to love, but is in fact pulling the strings to bring the lovers together. And the green and world- And
1: hold, even he holds them apart at the conclusion of 3-1. Exactly. Like t- his hands are completely on the wheel. He's making every little turn for the characters.
2: But it seems as though he's not, which is true. Yeah. The, the whole thing is a tempest. It's all this storm that you're like, I don't, wait, why is he keeping the love? They're already yeah. in love. Why is he doing this? Is he just messing with them? This is like what they, you wanted, Prospero. Yes, wanted. there's just this sense that the green world is completely controlled by Prospero. And I think Prospero shines in act three. I don't mean to sound negative about him. I think this is a redeeming, redeeming scene for him in, in um, act three, scene three. But I, this, this, Whole play has this feel that you're like I don't know where to put my weight down here.
1: Agree. Do that's true. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I really do. I was reading this week about um, how the the productions of this play over the centuries, how the figure of Caliban has changed in different productions over the centuries. So. Um. And I think the how you interpret Caliban is kind of an indicator of how you view this play and kind of the role that Prospero has over the other characters in this play. So um, you know, a couple centuries ago, Caliban was played as this almost kind of demonic figure, you know, just a beast and misshapen and vile no redeeming qualities more contemporary productions have him as he's basically the subject of a colonizing power prospero and so in the previous productions if you view caliban not as the product of his surroundings but is the product of a faulty nature, then Prospero's action upon him is a sort of redeeming action. Mm -hmm. He's calling him, sure, he calls him his slave, but look look at where Caliban came from before Prospero found him. He was in a horrible place. And so Prospero is kind of cast as this sort of redeeming influence upon this base nature creature that is Caliban. Now, a contemporary version that has Caliban as this kind of like brute, but who's been colonized, it's nurture that has done him wrong, not nature. Then Prospero, and this is what we spent a lot of our last podcast talking about, Prospero's influence upon him is a lot more dubious. It's, it's He is the colonizer. He is the one who calls him slave. He cannot be redeemed without some action from Prospero and Prospero seems content to let him just kind of do his hard work. So I'm just trying to point out that that even in the figure of Caliban, you have this sort of like representative icon of how you see the play in the island, whether or not the island is a good place full of magic and wonder and possibilities or, whether it's that plus um, it is under the yoke of a a difficult-to-interpret taskmaster.
2: I completely agree. And I think that that's true for some of his other comedic villains too. Shylock is a great example of that. In The Merchant of Venice, that originally he was played as... He's been played in multiple ways over the centuries, either as just this dastardly um, character or a, almost like a comic villain. Yeah, with like big eyebrows and a big mustache and a black cape, like kind of Snidely buffoon-ish. Whiplash or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, but then now he is played almost universally. At, 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 did you see Al Pacino's portrayal? I did. Yeah, It was phenomenal. Yeah, and. I I've also seen a production, a stage production of The Merchant of Venice in which as he was forced to convert, they were playing off stage the like the the melody of a Jewish funeral song. Huh. And being and it was being chanted in Hebrew. Huh. by players off stage and it was so moving. And so Over the set, that's the wonderful thing about Shakespeare. And I think in those plays, it works. Like, it actually makes the play better. Even if Shakespeare did intend them not to be um, necessarily um, sympathetic characters, If even if we are supposed to hate them, it it makes it better that we don't, that we feel a sense of compassion and a a drawing towards uh, even – those who have fully given into the fall of humanity as both Shylock and Caliban have, like there is no doubt they are villains. Yeah. But I, I don't know that I can be convinced that Shakespeare doesn't intend us to have some kind of compassion on them based on the, their lines. You know, that even what I read today from Caliban, that longing to the inability to be in one world or the other,
1: yeah, he that's a great way of describing asleep, him. He
2: can't be fully awake. And um, to your point about Prospero, to go back, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but I wanted to comment on, on Prospero calling him a slave. Um, even that, I think, can be interpreted sympathetically towards Prospero in the sense that Prospero tried to help him rule himself and Caliban refused. It is Caliban himself who makes himself a slave because he rejects all uh civilizing influence uh both from civilization i know you use the word civilizing and also from the soul in the soul sense of governing itself towards goodness truth and beauty he can't be he refuses to be educated beyond his shadow self that serves his own appetites and in that sense he makes himself a slave and that's exactly the language that scripture uses about those of us who choose to be dead in our sins so it, we're slaves to our passions and our appetites. And so in one sense, Prospero is simply speaking Caliban's own chosen identity over him. Now, that point of view also doesn't take into account the manipulation that Prospero does of Caliban and the appropriation of the resources of the island and of nature to his own ends. And so um, there's there's always that ambiguity within that character.
1: That, that ambiguity, I think, Heidi, is part of the reason why I think Shakespeare remains so alive and vibrant, mm-hmm. just from a practical point of view, when a playhouse is deciding to do a play, who makes that decision? Well, it's probably the artistic director of the theater. And the artistic director oftentimes let's, um, has working relationships with various directors and directors love I, I love, when I've directed plays, to kind of have a vision of a play and to be able to execute that vision down to the most minute details, right? Mm-hmm. and Shakespeare, this play, The Tempest, is such a great example of the power that a director can have in making the audience have a vision of whether or not the island, Caliban, Prospero, are malignant forces are positive forces. So much of it is up to the director. It doesn't mean that you can just do anything. The director can do anything willy nilly. There has to be some faithfulness to the text, but especially with a play like this, the way that you dress um, Caliban, the kind of costume that you put him in and is he in chains is he has one production had it? Is his is his black? Is his back bleeding from uh. blows that presumably have been given him by Prospero? Mm. What sort of choices do you make? And it's this play, I think, more than any other, maybe with the exception of *Midsummer Night's Dream*, it's a director's play. I think for *Midsummer Night's Dream*, the stakes are not quite as high f- for the director as they are. In this play, because the entire kind of moral um, life view of the play is kind of in the director's hands for the Tempest, whereas *Midsummer Night's Dream*, it, *Midsummer Night's Dream* is it's, it's a party. It's I mean, it's not, there's no. It's very lighthearted, and it's right. just it's a blast. But the Tempest is not. It's it's not just a party. There's like. Right vital issues are at stake here.
2: You're and right. The, I saw a, a production of Midsummer Night's Dream in which Hippolyta was chained to the wall the whole time. Um, and it was weird. Like, it just felt like they're trying to make...
3: Oh. I get what they were
2: saying, right? Like, Theseus kidnapped her and he, whatever. But, like, I get, I get what they're trying to say about it. But it didn't fit. Like, it, it, it just felt forced Like they're trying to make some kind of social commentary on a play that's, as you pointed out, very lighthearted and a party. And you kind of want to love it. Like you want to laugh along with it. And there's Hippolyta in the background, chained to the wall. And then you're like, oh, am I allowed to laugh? Because I thought that was funny. Like, and so that's, (laughs) so, but your point about the Tempest is this play is not lighthearted. It has lighthearted moments, and it has. It's very redemptive, very redemptive, but it's serious. Yeah, even though it's a comedy,
1: Heidi. Um, I kind of want to transition this. I, I actually have a plot question to ask you. So, to kind of remind viewers of the three scenes, opening scene in Act Three is. Ferdinand and Miranda and Prospero kind of seeing them fall in love, but saying not yet. Then next scene is Trinculo Caliban, Stefano getting drunk on the Island. And they're all kind of pursuing Caliban's desire for uh, revenge upon his master then the next scene, we're back with the Italians, where Sebastian, Alonzo, Antonio, Gonzalo. So there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's some confusion for me. It seems like in the first act of the play, Antonio is the one who's guilty of supplanting Prospero when they're back in Milan. But right. it seems in scene three of act three, that Ariel seems to hold Antonio, Alonzo, and Sebastian, all three responsible for supplanting Prospero.
2: Right, Did he, he does this? make that claim. Absolutely, he does say that. And I, I had to go back and look this because I couldn't remember this either. I had to go back to act one, scene two, the conversation between Prospero and Miranda to discover that Antonio... Had conspired with Alonzo, to who, the King of Naples, and at this time in Italian history, we're talking about individual cities, were their own nations, right? Um, and you know, that's that's why Italian history is so fascinating. <laughs> with these big ruling families, and these, you know, in Florence, and Milan, and Naples, and Rome, and uh, how they are only loosely allied. And constantly fighting against each other so uh the- Heidi, can i say yeah. something about that yeah please
1: um that part of italian history all these little municipalities and families kind of warring with each other i have heard that when dante writes the divine comedy so 1300 ish mm-hmm. he's writing not in latin not in the educated language, but he's writing in the common language, Italian. But his Italian is a particular form of Italian. It's a particular, maybe we would call it like a dialect. And part of the power of the divine comedy, it's so influential that in essence, it kind of unifies the language under that particular tongue that Dante wrote in and that kind of sets the scene for Italy to eventually become a unified state because it's really hard to unify a state when you have multiple languages or at least multiple thick dialects that are all kind of competing to be the primary, the primary language. So I think I, I, when I think of kind of like the power of a poet, I think of the most powerful poets, you know, in our history. And I think Dante was, (laughs) his poetry was so strong. He was so adored that he, in essence, had the kind of cumulative effect of unifying these disparate languages into one so that these different people groups could kind of solidify under the state that we now call Italy.
2: It's remarkable. It is so remarkable that poets throughout history had such formative power, not only to their own culture, but to posterity. And Shakespeare is one of those poets. We would have a completely different culture today if it wasn't for Shakespeare
0: and Dante
2: and Homer and Plato and the biblical writers. And, you know, that's... Those are the great books, not, not just the good ones that were very well written, but yeah, the uh, books whose uh, ideas. not And not just because their stories were so great, because Shakespeare took his stories from other sources except for this one.
3: But
1: Right, right. This one he, he came up with on his own.
2: It's, I, it's the form. It's the ideas. It's so much more than that.
1: I apologize. I derailed us from a question no, that derailed. I asked, and you. you so, I was
2: happy to be derailed.
1: <laughs> so, so okay. Who's guilty of helping supplant Prospero? Great. Is it is it
2: all three of these
1: guys? It's it that's funny.
2: That, it's funny because the that's another great thing about great books is that you talk on the epic level and the formative level of cultures, and then you go to wait, who's guilty of what? And the little minutia of the story and the micro exegesis of the plots and of the language and all that just works on so many levels and is great on so many levels. So, um, from what I found, Tim, and I know both of us looked at this up. So uh, that Alonzo is in on the plot with Antonio. Alonzo is the King of Naples. So, and, um, Prospero was the Duke of Milan, and a duke as is lesser in rank than a king, lower in rank. And so the, Antonio, when he was trying to supplant and usurp his brother, appealed to help from Naples, and Alonzo supported his usurpation of the dukedom from Prospero. Um, I couldn't, that, that was in act one scene Two. uh, that I okay. went back and found okay. that out, but I didn't find, I haven't found any reference to Sebastian's being in on the plot, but we, what we do know that Prospero knows everything that's going on on the island and knows that Sebastian and Antonio are now plotting against Alonso. So there are plots within plots. But Ariel does hold all three responsible in the harpy scene. Can you tell yeah. us about that scene? Describe to us what happens in the all-important act three, scene three of The Tempest.
1: <laughs> That's a hard job. It's so magical. So we kind of rejoined the Italians, and Ariel appears as a harpy, like a harpy from the Odyssey. I thought it was very fitting that we we're talking about the Tempest in this scene makes such a clear reference back to the Odyssey, which we did on close reads last month. Um, So the men are in essence terrified and there's a kind of banquet laid out for them. They, they rush to the banquet, but at this banquet, Ariel kind of reveals to them that his master views them as men enmeshed in sin they have been doing wrong and now they're kind of caught up in these in sort of like these magical bonds that prospero or kind of like a magical trap that prospero has set for them so that's where that act ends with prospero now he is kind of like delayed the reunion of excuse me the affair between Ferdinand and Miranda. And now he has kind of caught up these Italian men in this trap that Ariel has helped lay for them. And now kind of like, so Prospero has consolidated kind of all of the power, which he had, but now he's consolidated all of the different, um, the personages of the play. And they're in one way or another, with the exception of this little drunk trio under his spell by the end of act three. So this is the big turn that's happening. And we're going to go into act four and we're going to see, okay, Prospero, You've got everybody. Now you're ready to do what you want to happen. What do you want to happen? Cause we know that you want Ferdinand and Miranda to be together. We know that you want revenge upon Antonio and Alonso and Sebastian. Um, How are you going to resolve this? Is this going to be a marriage and revenge? Is this going to be some sort of a marriage that results in some sort of harmony between Prospero and his estranged brother? How are you going to do this?
2: Right. Right. There's just, uh, I feel like in this play, every scene creates more mysteries than it solves up to this point in the play. And I know there's a turn in Act Three, and we expect it to, uh, the threads to weave together in four and five. But this this particular scene is just so mysterious.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is.
2: So you reference the harpy as being a classical illusion. What is a harpy?
1: It's one of the kind of dingy. Winged creatures that Odysseus and his men meet on what island is it, Heidi? Gosh, I don't remember.
2: It's in the Aeneid, too. Yeah, Yeah. yep.
1: Yeah, and they kind of descend upon Odysseus's men. And I think they kind of don't they cover them in feces at one point? Like they're just harpies are synonymous with foul winged destruction.
2: Right. And, yes, and, they're gross and they make the yeah, food
1: gross. Right, they, right. Yeah. And yeah. Lewis
2: puts them into the last battle.
3: Oh, really?
2: Yeah, they are. No, is it the last battle or is it the Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Um, they encounter a king whose food is being eaten by birds it's huh. it's not the it's the, it's not the classical harpies that have the face of a woman and the,
1: yeah, the yeah, claws yeah. and
2: they befoul the food and leave droppings on the table and they make it so unappetizing. whatever's left in it is so unappetizing that no human could ingest it uh but that that idea of what what i think we we talked a little earlier about how disorienting the magic on the island is. Um, that kind of produces within readers, and I mean definitely within characters, a sense of disequilibrium. That with the with one hand, Prospero is offering food and a, like a banquet, a feast, but then on the other hand, it's being snatched from them, mm. right? And it is uh, a justice being imposed upon them for their wicked deeds and it is also an objective correlative for for their grasping desires right they're reaching out for the feast that is not theirs they want to take over power of the islands they want to take over power of milan and of naples they want to take what isn't theirs and feast on it and fatten themselves with it Uh, but instead at the last minute it's pulled away by justice Um, and that's Part of the contemplation of this particular story of the harpies in in classical antiquity too. And I think it's brilliant that Shakespeare puts it into this play.
1: There's so many classical allusions in this play, more than I recall from any other Shakespeare play. Yes. It's very Virgil heavy, allusions to Ovid's metamorphoses, allusions to Homer, as we've been discussing. And I love that Prospero is... His training is in the liberal arts, he says. It's what kind of his mastery subject was in the liberal arts. Mm. Um, Yeah, so another shout out to, like, teachers. If you want to – I don't know. Yeah, I think if you want to kind of, like, show students the power that their liberal education, liberal arts education has, just a reading of The Tempest and all the illusions, kind of like treating The Tempest as a treasure hunt for classical illusions might be a fun (sighs) sort of – treasure
2: hunt a treasure hunt i really love that so i had what probably will have to be a final thought yeah, since yeah. We're, we need to wrap up but i've been thinking so much about you how you connected the allegory of the soul of the chariot to this play and i was thinking about that in connection with ariel's role in act three scene three and how ariel if he represents kind of the, the the ego part, the part that wants to be good but must be ruled and will yeah. act in accordance with the governor of the soul, right? So, if the governor of the soul is good, Ariel will be good. If the governor of the soul is bad, Ariel will be bad. That's, yeah. that's the role of the ego. It can be influenced for good or for evil, um, but it follows the rules and it must submit to a ruler of some kind. It isn't inherently good on its own, even if it wants to be. Yeah. It has to be led right, by the charioteer. Right or super ego for using Freud's terminology. Um, So, but, so I was thinking about that in connection with this scene because he claims to be um, the Avenger of justice. Like he claims to be there representing justice. He's Mm. like, I am justice and you have done this evil deed. And he names Prospero, but he doesn't say Prospero is telling him to do it. So, I just found that fascinating in light of your comments and connection with the soul metaphor, that Ariel representing this white horse part is, and it's clear he has a delicate nature that's said several times, so he doesn't want to do evil, but he has to act in accordance with the leadership, does something just, but isn't just in and of himself. Yeah. Like he actually isn't avenging justice. Prospero is.
1: Right, right.
2: But he does a just act and claims that that he is justice himself. And so I've just been meditating on that this week and thinking about how often that works. So many times, even when I do good, it's not because I'm inherently good, but something, hopefully the Holy Spirit is leading me.
1: Right, right.
2: Orienting that part of me towards it. Um, and so I've been thinking some about the formation of the soul and how we become good and connected with this little scene, which yeah. is not a little scene. It's actually a big scene. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway.
1: but that, that, the, <laughs> the picture of the charioteer, I think, is so instructive. I have quibbles with that picture in Plato. I have quibbles with Plato. Sure, me too. so many things about that picture that are so instructive about like, when we look in at ourselves, there is these, these like there are these warring factions, you know, and like, they're all Paul, St. Paul, especially is very keen to point out these kind of warring factions within us. And to remind Christians to kind of, to choose the higher path, to right. choose to not live by the flesh. I, I think Plato, I'm about to go on a very quickly. I think sometimes it's very tempting to read St. Paul through the filter of Plato as in a denigration of the flesh, which um Paul kind of like warns us against the flesh, but I, I think Plato actually views the flesh as. Um,
2: Inherently less it's corrupted. T- it's yes. bad.
1: Right. Yeah. But putting that aside. Yeah. And. For Shakespeare to, I think, kind of capitalize on this kind of three part vision the charioteer as Prospero, Ariel as this kind of like noble desire to do good, but still must be ruled, and Caliban as this kind of like thing of, that, that craves baser impulses. It's just so smart. It's it so smart. It works throughout the
2: whole play. I it, it, really mean, it does. works throughout the whole play. I just keep thinking about it. So, thank you for making that connection for me. This is yeah. why we read in community. Cause That's I, don't, right. I That's wouldn't right. have gotten there. I love it. So anyway, thanks, thanks, Heidi. You
1: thanks. Hey, listen, let's wrap it up until we come together next week for act four and begin to put this play into its final sense of harmony. And we will hear the kind of like famous, what scholars think is the famous sign off from Shakespeare coming from the voice of Prospero but his task as a playwright, Prospero's task as a magician, um, being kind of one and the same, being sort of analogous to each other. So, Heidi, I'm going to sign us off. Remember, everybody, you can join the conversation online on Facebook. The Close Reads discussion group on Facebook is just always alive with like all sorts of fun things from photographs to of of people you know i love when people fo- send photographs of these kind of like incredible finds they have at their local bookstore this is one of my favorite things to look in at um we're also on instagram and on twitter at close reads pods and you can also email us at close reads podcast at gmail.com and don't forget our email newsletter which you can sign up for at close reads.substack.com so Heidi, thanks so much. And for everybody at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I am Tim McIntosh. Thank you for listening and happy reading.